Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth, and we want to do it in plain language. Today, I'm going to be giving my final thoughts on Redeeming Love. So a few weeks ago, I made a video about why I chose not to see the movie Redeeming Love, and my video was met with a bit of a mixed reaction. Uh, So I'm going to play the words I spoke for you on the audio feed today, I'm going to acknowledge some of the comments that offered some pushback, clear up some misconceptions, and then offer some final thoughts. But before we get to that, I want to invite you to subscribe. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you're listening, you are not going to want to miss some of the episodes we have coming up. Next week, we're going to be talking with the guys from the Cultish podcast about what Christians can learn from the Jim Jones, Jonestown massacre. Fascinating conversation that I had with those guys. Can't wait to play that for you. So make sure you subscribe. And if you haven't checked out the YouTube channel yet, we are doing a big event on March 8th at 4 p.m. Pacific and 7 p.m. Eastern. This is what we're calling a super stream. So it's myself, Natasha Crane, Krista Bontrager, and Monique Dasan. We're all coming together to super stream this event on our YouTube channels and Facebook platforms. And the reason we've all come together is because we are going to be talking about the new messaging and marketing materials for the Orange Curriculum. So the Orange Curriculum is a a curriculum that is used for children's ministries across the country in churches. So it's very influential. And we all noticed some of the new messaging seems to be leaning toward an incredibly progressive Christian message. So we felt it was important enough for all of us to come together and talk about it. So again, that's March 8th, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. PM Eastern on YouTube. Eventually, that will stream here to the audio uh, podcast platform as well. But if you want to watch live and ask questions, I think we're going to even be taking some questions. March 8th, 4 p.m. Look for any one of our YouTube channels or Facebook platforms for that. Another thing I want to let you know about coming up is I am giving a six-week online course called Responding to Progressive Christianity. And if you select the premier Uh, the premiere option. You're going to get six weeks of Zoom meetings with me where I'll take questions and answers based on that week's uh, teaching videos, materials, lessons, commentaries. There's all sorts of great stuff that will help really equip you to understand progressive Christianity and answer it biblically. So if you want to register for that, you can go to onlinechristiancourses.com and you can use the coupon code PC20 to get 20% off of your tuition. Now, that coupon code is only good through March 6th. That's today. So the day this podcast comes out, you you have till the end of today to get that 20% off using the code PC20. So again, go to onlinechristiancourses.com, select Responding to Progressive Christianity, and use the coupon code PC20 for 20% off. All right, so I want to tell you about a couple of really cool experiences that I had last week. I had the great honor of speaking at the chapels for both the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and Samaritan's Purse. And it was on two different days. So the first day when I did the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, I got to tour 
uh, the grounds. I got to see the house Billy Graham grew up in and walk inside of it. And then I got to go visit the gravesite of Billy and Ruth Graham. And it, it was extremely moving. It was such a moving experience. And I don't know if you all know this story, but um, Billy Graham and his wife, Ruth, were both buried in caskets made by inmates. And as far as I understand the story, their granddaughter, uh, Sissy Graham, was telling me the story that there was a warden who was uh, a Christian. And he noticed that for, for some of these men who were in prison for life, they would have visitors at first, and then those visitors would sort of trail off. But it was always the mothers that would continue to visit the prisoners that were in for life. But then there came a point in time when the mothers would die. And then there would be nobody to continue visiting these prisoners. And then when they would die, there'd be nobody to claim the body. So he had this idea to have the prisoners start making caskets. And so that's what they did. And that way they could have a, a proper burial. Well, Billy and Ruth Graham are buried in the caskets made by inmates. When she told me that story, I, I really became overcome with emotion. And I don't know how well known that story is, but I really loved that. I thought that was a, a really cool ministry that that warden had and just demonstrating the humility of Billy and Ruth Graham to be buried in those caskets. And so I thought that was really cool. The next day, I went to the Samaritan's Purse offices thinking nothing could top that day before. And it was incredible. I, I had no idea how much Samaritan's Purse is doing for the world, all over the world. Anytime there's a natural disaster, a war, uh, any sort of conflict or tragedy, they fly right into it. In fact, while I was there, they were mobilizing their field hospital that they're flying into the Ukraine as we speak, I think they've actually set it up today or yesterday. They have flown that in there. And I got to even talk to the team that's in charge of uh, the domestic side of the Afghan refugee crisis. They're working with local churches to try to find homes and, and uh, get the Afghan refugees that have come to the States, get them stabilized and, and integrated into communities. It's just amazing, amazing work. And by the way, I want to be really clear. I'm not making a dime to say this. This isn't some sort of a paid sponsorship deal. I just was so impressed. I wanted to tell my people about it. So, you know, if you're a church that might be able to help with that Afghan refugee crisis, check out Samaritan's Purse. Go to the website and just see what you can do to help because they are doing amazing work. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. Again, not a paid sponsorship. I'm not making a dime to say that. Nobody asked me to say it. I just wanted to say it because I was so impressed and, and thought that what they're doing is incredible. Okay, well, so how does that tie in with redeeming love? Well, when I was on one of the tours, I was talking with someone who shared a different perspective on redeeming love. And this person basically said, you know, I, I love your ministry, but I really disagreed with you on this. And so I I wanted to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that, um, you know, I made some comments about why I chose not to see the movie Redeeming Love. And I want to be really clear that I stand by what I said. I think I got it right. But the first misconception that I want to sort of clear up is that if you disagree with me, I'm not calling you a heretic. We can be sisters in Christ and disagree on something like this and, you know, have a cup of coffee and hug and, and just disagree. And what I try to do when I'm listening to other platforms and stuff is it's just a good reminder to always filter everything we believe through Scripture. Uh, if somebody says something you disagree with on what might be a secondary 
issue or something that's maybe less important than a primary doctrine, we can agree to disagree on those things. And, um, you know, I, I realized that my video was met with pretty mixed reviews, and that's okay. Again, I stand by what I said. I think I got it right. But at the same time, it's a good opportunity for all of us to resist tribalism. So I, I wanted to acknowledge that, that um, there are mature women of God who have talked with me, not just one, but two or three, who said, you know, I didn't totally agree with you, but, you know, maybe maybe some of my thoughts helped sharpen their thoughts and vice versa or whatever. So I wanted to acknowledge that. But with that said, I'm, I'm going to play for you now the audio of the video that I made, because if you're listening on the audio platform right now, you may not have even known that I made a video about redeeming love. And so I made this video. Um, it got quite a few views, and there was quite a lot of comments, both on Instagram and on YouTube, a lot of pushback. So what I want to do today is clear up some misconceptions I think about some of the words that I said, maybe engage with some of the pushback, and then offer some final thoughts, and then I'm going to be done with it. So final thoughts on redeeming love. But first, I'm going to play you the audio of the video I made. Redeeming Love is a Christian film that's based on the 1991 best-selling novel of the same name. It takes place in the American Old West amid the California gold rush of 1850. And on the official website for the movie, it describes the movie this way. It says, It is a life-changing story of the power of unconditional and all-consuming love. Playing in theaters now, Redeeming Love shows there is no brokenness that love can't heal. And although I wasn't able to find this on the website, for the movie, in the official description for the book, it tells us that this is a powerful retelling of the story of Gomer and Hosea. And it says, Redeeming love is a life-changing story of God's unconditional, redemptive, all-consuming love. So Christians are flocking to the theaters to see this movie because it's a retelling of the book of Hosea in the Bible. Now, everyone seems to be talking about this right now. My social media news feeds are flooded with reviews. I've seen reviews of people defending the movie and saying, hey, this is an important movie to see and here's why. And then I've seen others saying Christians should not be seeing this movie and here's why. Uh, I even received texts from friends, some who have seen it, some who haven't, saying, what do you think about it? And in the movie, apparently, once they get married, there are a couple of pretty steamy scenes. But the main point is that all of the discussions that I'm seeing uh, around this movie have to do with the question, should Christians watch sex scenes, or you know, is it appropriate for Christians to watch sex scenes in movies if those scenes are either driving the story and an important component of the art of the movie, um, or if they're pointing to some type of a redemptive end? And that seems to be the question everybody's asking. But And I'm actually going to swing back around to that question at the end, but I think everyone is missing the point. And here's why. From what I understand about the basic storyline of the movie, which is involves a young girl that is sold into sex slavery as a young child, and then as she grows up, she, she sort of gets embedded into that system. She, she can't really escape. She kind of dreams of a better life. She doesn't really want to be doing this, but, uh, but, but she's sort of stuck in this system because she was sold into it as a child. And then uh, this man, God tells this man he's going to marry this girl when he sees her walking down the 
the street one day, and by the way, she just happens to be the prettiest girl in the brothel. That's a little convenient for the story, but hey, he falls madly in love with her. And essentially, the whole story through a long series of events is her, him showing her true, real love and helping bring her out of this system of sex slavery and prostitution, even though she kind of, you know, she goes back to it a couple times, and then he he comes and, and redeems her, essentially, and then they end up having, uh, I guess the whole movie culminates in a couple of scenes of them consummating their love, which is meant to portray, uh, you know, just the beauty of their their sexual life together after all this redemption, and then they go on to have children and, and all of that. And so, um, but I just want to say, that is not what the book of Hosea is about. That's not what the book is about. So the book of Hosea is about uh, this prophet that God commands to marry an immoral woman, which may—there's a little bit of debate about this, if if she was a prostitute to begin with, and then he was supposed to marry a prostitute, or if she would then—if she wasn't a prostitute to start with, but then she would uh, cheat on him. But either way you interpret it, the point is, is that— after they were married, she would be committing adultery on him over and over again. And so in the story, after some time, they have three children. She abandons him. She cheats on him. She leaves him for other lovers and eventually falls into some kind of destitution, possibly even some type of slavery. And then again, at God's direction, Hosea goes and finds her, redeems her, and brings her home. And so the question is, what's the larger point of the book of Hosea. Uh, I want to read to you from Hosea from the beginning so that we'll know what is the book of Hosea about. So starting in verse 2, it says this, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom. This is the ESV I'm reading from. And have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So the larger sign, the larger thing we're supposed to get out of this is that the reason God is telling Hosea to go marry a woman who's going to cheat on him over and over again is to show how he feels about Israel's willful, continual, unrepentant rebellion against him. Okay, grasp this. The story of Hosea is not about an innocent victim that was sold into sex slavery and then through a long series of events gets rescued out of it into this, you know, beautiful life that she gets to live here on earth. Friends, that's the social gospel. That's the progressive gospel. The Christian gospel says, yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a story that should drive us to our knees in repentance. It should drive us into our knees in thankfulness and worship to God for his unfathomable mercy to us. We deserve death. We deserve hell. Yet he rescues us. And it's, and the reason it's framed this way, or I think one of the reasons is that a large theme throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament is this uh, metaphor of marriage, right? So in the Old Testament, Israel is often uh, compared to a, a wife to Yahweh. And so when Israel commits rebellion against God, it's like a wife committing adultery. They, they continue to take up their idols and serve other gods and worship other gods. They weren't an innocent victim that just wanted to get out of a bad system. And this raises a very concerning thing. I'm concerned about the modern sort of um, 
knee-jerk reaction to reinterpret biblical passages in the light of victimhood, the Bible is about God, right? It's about his holiness. And so we, we, if we are in this picture at all, it's a, as an extension of that bride metaphor. And then in the New Testament, of course, you have themes of uh, Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. So this is an important metaphor for God all throughout scripture is that, yes, he loves us and there's redeeming love, um, but that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his shed blood, where he takes the punishment of our sin upon himself. And that's another big theme in Hosea is punishment. Uh, after you watch this video, open up Hosea, read chapter two to learn God's attitude toward Israel, essentially, who's who's continually committing adultery on God. Read that. Read Ezekiel 16. Now, Ezekiel 16 is not directly about Hosea, but they're related in the sense that it shows us a picture of God's attitude towards sin, and it gets pretty graphic in Ezekiel 16. Read it for yourself. And so this brings me back around to the, the question about the steamy scenes in the movie. I'm going to tell you why I'm choosing not to see this movie. And I want to read to you something that Jesus said about lust. He said this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? So lust is when you, you look at someone with lustful intent. Now, I want you to ask yourself, as you're thinking about whether or not to see this movie, what response is this going to provoke in you? You're watching a movie where there's this long, drawn-out uh, you know, story of love, redemption. There's sexual tension under the whole thing. And then it culminates into a lengthy and perfectly curated uh, scene with perfect lights and music. And I just want to ask you, is that going to cause you to fall on your face before God in repentance? Is it going to cause you to fall down before him in worship and thankfulness for his redemption, for your willful rebellion against him? I don't think that's the response it's going to provoke in me. I don't think I need to see that. And if I could just say to Christian women, sisters, please, I mean, the whole—so, okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I was up a, a lot last night just praying about this. The Lord just kept bringing it to my heart, and I couldn't rest. And um, this, the phrase that kept coming to my mind was, snap out of it. Christian women, snap out of it. Read your Bible. If you want to know what Hosea is about, study Hosea. What's enticing you that you want to see this movie? Now, listen, this is not— about being a fuddy-duddy about sex, okay? Um, this is not me putting on my goody two-shoes and waving my finger and saying, get off my lawn, kids. This is because I think that God, God is the inventor of sex, and he gave it to us as a gift. It is meant to be enjoyed. It, is, it has a purpose that is beautiful and lovely. It bonds two people together as one flesh for a lifetime. It, it causes, uh, it, there, it's for procreation, for pleasure, for intimacy. There are so many wonderful things about God giving us the gift of sex, but it's meant to be between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And the question is, is watching the most intimately sacred and private act being portrayed on a screen, is that going to draw you to Christ? 
That's, that's just the question I want to ask you. So that is why I'm choosing not to see it, but I'd love to know what you think. If you've seen the movie, leave a comment. Let us know why you think it's a good movie or why you, you agree with what I'm saying. Maybe it's not something people need to see. Or are you choosing not to see it? Let us know that. Let's have a discussion. Leave a comment below. I'd love to know what you think. But for now, I'm uh, choosing to, uh, to not go see it. And I'm going to be over here reading my Bible. I'm going to read Hosea. Okay, so that's what I said about the movie Redeeming Love. Now, I want to say something um, just to be clear right from the start. I did not read the book Redeeming Love. Um, and so my comments that you just heard in the video are really more about the movie, okay? Because that's one of the things that some people have said is, hey, the book is really different from the movie. That's, that's fine. Put the book aside. I really have nothing to say about the book because I didn't read the book, so I can't give a critique. And my point with the movie really had more to do with the fact that it was based on the story of Hosea and that it contained these steamy scenes. Now, I, I want to tell you, I didn't just... Uh, you know, fly off the cuff. Um, I believe I made an informed decision to not see the movie, and that was based on spending about a whole day researching, reading synopses, reading reviews, reading. I read reviews by athe an atheist. I read reviews by Christians. I read synopses. I uh, watched the trailer, and I believe that gave me enough information to make the decision not to see the movie. Um, so, and, and the main point, of course, that I made in the video is that, that the, what is coming out from the synopsis and what it seems about the movie is that's not what the book of Hosea is about. And then one of the pushbacks that I want to interact with first is that, you know, people said, well, it's actually not supposed to be based on Hosea. And so the movie is based on the book. And the book, it says very clearly in the description, is not loosely. It says it's a retelling of the story of Hosea. Now, the movie is based on the book. It actually, those words are not found on the website for the movie. I grant that. But it's an adaptation of the book into the movie. So that's relevant. That's in people's minds. That's in the background there. And so I, I, I want to address that. I also want to address the use of sex scenes in movies. You know, should Christians watch those things? And if you're going to see a movie like this, like that's that's what I want us to think about. What kind of a response is that scene going to provoke in us? Is that something that's going to honor God and point us to Christ or something else? And so one of the pushbacks that I got was people were saying, well, if you don't read, if you haven't read the book or you haven't watched the movie, then you don't get to comment on it. And so I'll, I'll just give some, some response to that. The main reason I think that it's valid to criticize something you haven't seen, uh, especially for those reasons, is just, you know, ask yourself this question. I'm going to use an extreme example, okay? Do you have to watch pornography in order to be against pornography, right? Do you actually have to watch a pornographic video in order to tell other people that they shouldn't watch that pornographic video? And if the answer is no, well, then I think it, it applies here. Now, like I said before, I did my due diligence. I researched into the movie. Now, it is very interesting to me, and I think this is something for us to think through together as Christians as it would apply to discernment. Judging by a lot of the comments that I have received about the video, 
I see it really split down the middle. It's very interesting. Many people saying there were zero sex scenes in the movie. There wasn't anything at all. All the way to other people saying the scenes were so intense that I was uncomfortable in the theater. In fact, somebody I know personally had gone to see the movie with a couple of friends and their mom, and they were kind of like having to crack jokes to break the tension because it was kind of like, wow, like they didn't expect these scenes to go so far. Now, that's that that says something to me about where Christians are at, because for somebody to say, I watched the movie and there was nothing in it, there was no sex scene in it, um, that makes me wonder, like, and, and this is just a question for all of us to ask ourselves, are we, are we so desensitized to graphic sexuality in the TV shows that we watch and in the movies that we consume that something that might appear to be milder doesn't even register? I mean, I think that's a question that we should ask ourselves. Now, of course, I realize that the scene, the scene or scenes that are in Redeeming Love are probably not as bad as some of the stuff that's on Netflix or, or some other platform. Um, but this is the thing that the Lord's really been working in my heart. And I would just maybe ask for those who are listening to let this challenge you a little bit because I'm letting this challenge me. Because certainly there have been times I've been watching a movie or I'm at home and I can fast forward a scene or I might, you know, if I'm in a theater, I might just turn my eyes away or something like that. But are we so desensitized that a scene like this in a movie that's promoted as Christian, a movie that's based on a book that is a retelling of the story of Hosea, like, are we desensitized? I think that's a question to ask ourselves because one of the pushbacks that I received many times I saw was people saying, well, it's not nearly as bad as the stuff we're all watching on Netflix. And my question is, are we all watching that stuff on Netflix? And I will tell you this. I'm just going to confess this to you. This whole thing, this whole redeeming love thing, the Lord has really used that in my life to tighten up what I let into my soul, what I let into my spirit uh, through the media that I consume. I realized, man, I've really let my guard down in some areas, and I need to tighten those things back up. Does that mean we should become legalistic? No, I am not advocating that we become legalistic. I, I, we, we, we don't want that, right? But at the same time, is watching graphic sex, and I'm not talking about redeeming love, I'm just talking about in general, the things that are desensitizing us, is that, is that leading us to Christ? Is that something that is redeemable as we discern and as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, I can tell you that in my own life, the Lord has really used this whole thing to kind of wake me up and go, man, I should probably stop watching this show that I was watching and just sort of excusing certain scenes in. Um, that's, that's what he's been doing in my heart. So I want to invite you into that. Maybe that's you. Maybe if you're, if you're one of those people saying, well, this wasn't so bad because the stuff I normally watch is way worse. Well, does that just mean we're desensitized? I think it's something worth asking. And so, again, I'm not advocating that we fall into legalism. Like I said, I'll be watching something. I'll, I'll turn my eyes. But I do think there's something about a movie that's marketed to Christians, a movie that is at least implicitly imply, uh, based on a book of the Bible, 
that has a pretty sensual scene. I'll just fall in the middle there because I didn't see it, but from what it's been described as, it's at least sensual. Um, I almost want to use the word blasphemy with that. I mean, I know that's strong. And again, you don't have to agree with me, but it's supposed to be a retelling of, of, of the Bible. And so I think that's what makes a scene like that in a movie like this a little extra, right? A little bit extra offensive in a certain way. And I think it could just be me. I, I get my hackles up when people start wanting to represent the Bible visually in media and TV shows because there's always license ta taken. And I think that sometimes license can be taken in a way that is honoring to the story. And if you're a mature Christian and you know the real story very well, you know, maybe that can that can be something that is a, a, a positive experience to watch a Bible adaptation. But I will just tell you, like, how many many of us thought that the Pharaoh of the Exodus was Ramses because that's what it that's who it was in the Charlton Heston movie. It's, it probably wasn't Ramses. So there are, I think, little dangers to doing Bible adaptations. And I just, I don't know, I don't love it when people dramatize the Bible. It's just not my favorite. Again, this could be a blind spot I have. Um, I know other people who maybe got insights into things from Bible ad adaptations that they've seen. I just don't generally end up liking those because they veer so far from the text. And then they speculate on things that I just don't think we're supposed to speculate on. So that's kind of where I'm at right now with Bible ad adaptations. And I'm totally open to changing my mind on that. So um, there, I want to interact with uh, one misconception and then some pushback. So one of the comments that I want to acknowledge regarding the whole redeeming love thing, several people commented that I want to I want to sort of put all those together and represent that comment, and that would be that a lot of people have said, "Hey, um, I or somebody I know and love was a woman who has a very promiscuous past before they were a Christian, and they thought they were worthless. They thought that God couldn't love them." They thought that their lives were irredeemable, and then either the book or the movie Redeeming Love showed them that God loves them and that he wants a relationship with them and that they, you know, they aren't defined by their past. And so I want to acknowledge that, and I want to say that if that's you, if you have that, that kind of a past— Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. He shed his blood for you so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could be adopted into God's family. And that is no minor thing. And I don't want anything that I ever say to take away from that. With that said, though, uh, you, you can get that from the Bible. You actually don't need a movie that might have potential dangers in it to give you that message. But I do want to acknowledge that, that if if you have, you know, a real um, significant past like that, Jesus loves you. And when, you know, and that is the thing about Hosea is that we do have this story playing out of Yahweh and Israel through the lives, you know, as a representation uh, of Gomer and Hosea. And Gomer does redeem I mean, Hosea does redeem Gomer as a representation of God redeeming Israel. Um, that happened. And so there, I don't think there's anything wrong with you reading the book of Hosea and saying, man, I really identify with Gomer. Like, we, I think we're supposed to identify with Gomer. My concern, though, 
and, and I'm going to say this is a really strong concern with the movie Redeeming Love in particular. Again, I don't know what the book's about. I didn't read the book. But from the synopses I've read of the movie, I'm deeply concerned that this kind of a movie, you, you have this nearly perfect protagonist, right? You have this nearly perfect Michael Hosea, I think his name is. And he just so perfectly loves this this woman who, uh, Gomer or uh, Angel, I think her name is. She's the most beautiful girl in the brothel. Here's my concern. In the trailer even, he sees her in the window and it's like he just falls in love with her beauty. But that's not necessarily the story of Hosea. In fact, the, the Bible's kind of silent on how Hosea felt about the whole thing. I'm going to get into that in a moment because I'm going to talk through Hosea a little bit. But my concern, though, is it's going to—this it, movie could have the potential to have that sort of Disney effect of someday my prince will come and he's going to solve all my problems. And, you know, I was so hurting and broken before and now I'm complete in this man. Um, that's not the story of Hosea. And that's a Disney story. And that's not real life. In marriage, you know, even Gomer and Hosea, after a few years down the road, are not, you know, rolling in, <laughs> I don't know, at the, in the field or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that this movie has the potential to send the message to women uh, to be discontent in their marriages because most husbands out there are not going to be this perfect, loving you know, patient guy like this. And and I'm not excusing men. I'm just saying nobody's perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not a perfect wife. My husband's not a perfect husband. And the story of marriage in the Bible is, uh, is continuing to keep in that covenant when times are hard. Biblical marriage is about persevering through those times. And it's not always, you know, you know there are women who are in unfulfilled, they're not fulfilled in their marriages. And, you know, it, it, I, I'm concerned that a movie like this could even maybe cause them to start fantasizing about someone else or uh, maybe looking for a way out of their marriage covenant. It's just a concern that I have. Okay, now I want to I want to address another type of pushback that I saw. And actually, um, I thought this was a really thoughtful comment. And this was on YouTube, and I appreciate this comment, and I think it's a valid question. So, uh, and, and it kind of represents a lot of other questions that people had. Okay, so um, this was from Sherry on YouTube, and she said this. So I'm a bit confused. I recently bought and read the first Mama Bear Apologetics book, which I know you endorsed and helped author. Uh, yes, I, and I did. So uh, she goes on, and the number one thing that was hardest for me to accept was the chapter in the section on allowing kids to watch movies because they should allow be allowed to do the chew and spit. Um, and so she says, and I'll explain what that is in a moment. Sherry goes on, I'm probably one of the most strict parents in my kid's circle. And that was hard for me to grasp. I, I felt the book, podcasts like this one, other spiritual leaders in the same realm as yourself are telling me, hey, Marvel movies are great for my kids and I should learn from Hunger Games. But this one shouldn't be watched by adults. 
Sherry says, I don't disagree with the concerns and statements you've made. I very much appreciate the thoughts on how it has twisted the victim status and what should be an admittance of our all-out sin. But I find the line is very blurry here on what we should chew and spit. So I think this is a very fair question. I think it's a thoughtful and a good question. So I want to address it in a couple of different ways. And um, so I, I sort of touched on this a bit earlier when I said there's something sort of especially blasphemous about having a scene like this in a movie where the culmination of the book of Hosea is really supposed to give us an inside view of God's attitude towards sin, towards sin how he feels about sin and our about our rebellion against him and ultimately his redemption of us because we are, uh, you know, grafted in, right? So this was Yahweh and Israel. So the Gomer-Hosea narrative in there, uh, but it's meant to be an illustration that's ultimately supposed to help us to understand God's attitude towards sin, his faithfulness to Israel, his faithfulness to the covenant he made with Israel despite her continual rebellion against him. So to me, to culminate that message with an erotic scene, um, it's just, it just takes it too far. Um, so, you know, again, these are my thoughts. These are my opinions. Um, you, you know, think through this for yourself and discern it for yourself. But um, Sherry mentioned the chew and spit method. So in the Mama Bear Apologetics book, Hillary, who's the general editor, she came up with this idea of talking about the chew and spit method. And she talks about how as a parent, uh, there's, of course, a recognition that each kid is different. Every parent needs to parent each kid according to who that kid is. Uh, for example, I parent my two younger children very differently from each other um, They're because they're different people. Um, I allow different media, different things based on their maturity level. There's, there's an age-appropriate type of exposure to ideas. Now, you know, even though Hillary and I might split hairs a little bit on how that was worded in the book, I might word it a, a slightly bit different. Um, what we're both talking about, um, no, we're not talking about scenes of sensuality, right? We're talking about ideas and teaching our children to navigate and interact with the ideas they're constantly bombarded with. So the point of the chew and spit method is not to say, hey, go watch all the Marvel movies with your kids and see what you can learn from them. That's not the point of it. Um, the point of it is that your kids are probably at some point going to see Marvel movies or their friends are going to talk about them. Or when they grow up and leave your house, you're, they're probably going to see those movies. Or maybe you will choose to watch them with your child and discern through them and watch them. But we have an opportunity as parents to teach our kids how to navigate discernment in the media they consume. So chew and spit does not mean that, you know, to continue with the metaphor that you just put everything in your mouth and find all the good spit stuff and then spit out the bad stuff. That's not the spirit of what's being conveyed in the book because there are just some things you don't want to put in your mouth. You don't want to chew and spit a piece of poo, okay? So, and Hillary and I have talked about this. We've had a couple conversations, and I might have worded things a little bit differently in that section, but the overall spirit of it is how I approach parenting with my own kids. So my husband and I, we let them watch some Disney movies depending on the child, but we talk through everything. We ask questions like, what is the main message of this movie? What do the makers of this movie want you to walk away believing? What, what are the heroes like? What are the villains like? Do the actions of the heroes line up with what the Bible says is good? Or are they calling evil good? And are they calling good evil? So 
we use these opportunities to help our kids navigate through these messages. So here's a perfect example. My daughter loves Marvel movies. And if you haven't seen all the Marvel movies, uh, at the end, basically Tony Stark, who's Iron Man, essentially gives his life for the world. And what a great opportunity to say to your kid, why do you think that resonates with you? Why do you think that everybody watching this movie sees that as a virtuous and heroic act? What a great opportunity to introduce your kids to the real story. Maybe because the, what Marvel is doing in that moment, maybe not in other moments, but in that moment, maybe that's that's speaking to the real story that resonates because God has put his law in our hearts. Deep down, we know that laying your life down for others is good. We, we love, that's what we love about Jesus. He died for us. I mean, what a great way to introduce the idea of Jesus giving his life. Greater love has no man than he lay down his life for his friends. So there are ways I think we can use things, um, you know, if they're exposed to Harry Potter or they're exposed to Marvel, we can use that as an opportunity to, to dissect it. You know, ask our kids, what are they saying that's true? What are they saying that's false? And so I think that gives us, uh, that, that, that can help our kids to learn to have an approach to media that's not fear-based. But if there's something of value, they can say, hey, I actually agree with that point because of my biblical worldview. I agree with that, what that person just said, but I actually disagree with what they said five minutes earlier because that doesn't line up with truth. So I hope that makes sense because the spirit of it is not to say, go watch all the movies and you know find the gospel in them. Certainly not. Um, that's not what we're trying to convey. Um, so learning to pass on some things completely and engage with others is another way to show your kids how to be discerning. So that's, you know, it's just that's some of my comments on some of the pushback. Hopefully I cleared up some misconceptions. But what I am so excited to talk to you about now is the fact that this whole thing, if there's one thing we can agree on, even if you disagree with me about the movie, the one thing as Christians I think we can agree on is that studying the book of Hosea is amazing. So that's what I've been up to since I made that video. I have been doing a deep dive study of Hosea and it has blessed me so, so much. And so I want to invite you on that journey with me. I've actually been blogging through the book of Hosea on my website, elisachilders.com. I've already got five posts up and we haven't even gotten through the whole, the second chapter. So this is going to be, um, you know, an ongoing thing. I'm going to be blogging through. And just in general, I'm going to be blogging through when I'm done with Hosea. Just what where I'm at in the scriptures, and that's accountability for me. And then hopefully that will bless somebody else as well. But man, I'm telling you, what I have learned about the nature and character of God by studying Hosea, I'm so excited to share with you. I'm just going to make some comments here on the podcast, but I'll refer you to the website if you want to go a little deeper. So right before this all happened, I was kind of I was deep in First John and kind of studying that, but I jumped out of there and into Hosea. Um, and so there's one thing that I didn't really articulate in the video that I'd like to point out because it's something that I think is really vital that we don't miss. First of all, the book of Hosea in the Bible is not primarily a love story. It's actually not a love story at all. Um, the main point I don't want us to miss is that when, when God first came to Hosea and told him that he would marry a wife of whoredom, the Bible is silent on how Hosea felt about that. 
Like, we don't know. It's not like the, you know, the scene in the movie where he looks up in the window and he sees this beautiful woman and he's just taken with her. We don't know that. Uh, scholars, some scholars speculate that maybe this could have been the wife of his youth, that maybe he had loved her. Maybe he was just obeying God's commands. Um, so the, the scripture itself does not communicate that when God commanded Hosea to do that, that his heart magically fell in love with her. So the more I, I, I think about this, the more I think it's critical that we understand the larger theme of Hosea. Hosea was just stone-cold obedient. He obeyed. And it's actually debated among scholars whether or not she was a prostitute when Hosea married her. Most of the commentaries that I've read, because of the way the language is arranged in the Hebrew, would suggest that when Hosea was commanded to marry her, she was not yet a prostitute. She was not uh, a, a, a cheat. You know, she hadn't committed the whoredom yet, but that she would. Likely after their three children were born, that's when she leaves. She uh, 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 she leaves him for other lovers and then ends up in destitution, possibly some kind of sex slavery, and then he has to go and buy her back. But the main point is that when, when God commanded Hosea to marry her, she was going to cheat on him over and over and over again. And Hosea knew this. And so Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea in the Bible is an example of Israel's continual, unrepentant rebellion against God. And so in chapter 3, God does command Hosea to love her. This would be after she committed adultery and fall, had fallen into destitution. But of course, love is not a feeling of infatuation. Uh, Hosea obeyed. It's, there's no indication that he was in love with her in the romantic sense at the time. So whether or not those feelings developed, the text just doesn't say. And this, this is so important because it speaks volumes about the unconditional love of God. Think about this. God didn't look at Israel... Um, and I think the backstory here is important, too, because according to the movie, she was uh, sort of sold into sex slavery as a child, and then Michael Hosea rescues her out of that. That's not the story that's going on in Hosea. It's not like, God, you know, poor little Israel had been taken advantage of, and that's why she was where she was at. No, the, the, the Bible does not communicate it that way. Um, Hosea was commanded to love her despite how he may have felt about it. God loved Israel unconditionally. There was nothing like no victim status that Israel had that moved Yahweh's heart to say, okay, I'm going to save Israel because she's been victimized. That's a theme in the movie. That's not a theme in the book. And so I fear that the love story angle could actually lead people to think that we are somehow the victimized pretty girl that God sees something beautiful in and chooses to redeem. No, God does not love us because we're beautiful or because we're victims or because we're the prettiest girl in the brothel. God loves us because he is love. There's nothing we could do to deserve his love. In fact, Ephesians 2.3 tells us that by nature, we are children of wrath. There's absolutely nothing we've done to deserve his love, yet he lavishes it on us anyway. And so the story of Hosea in scripture, it's not a love story about a victim of sex trafficking who is loved out of a toxic system into a marriage uh, with amazing sex and sudden fertility. Um, in fact, the, the, the aspect of fertility is actually quite complicated. So in, in the book of Hosea, 
God tells Hosea to name the first child Jezreel. So why would God choose that name? This is what it says in Hosea 1, verse 4 and 5. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So why would God command Hosea and Gomer to name their first child Jezreel? Well, we have to know a little bit about that word. So Jezreel was actually a geographical site. It was the site of many bloody battles. It's actually where Jehu ruthlessly massacred uh, massacred the house of Ahab. We find this in 2 Kings 9 and 10. This is where other battles were fought. Uh, Deborah and Gideon fought there. And eventually, this would be the site where God would end Israel's dependence on their military power. That's what, that's what Hosea is talking about there in verse 5 when he says, I'll break the bow of Israel. Israel is not going to be able to use their bow and military might um, to deliver themselves. God's going to break the bow of of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, One commenter noted that for an ancient Jew, Jezreel would have conjured up images of bloodshed, kind of like saying the word Chernobyl today would make us think about nuclear war and devastation. That would be the, the similar connotation that Jezreel would have. Now, there's a little bit of a complicated aspect here because God had actually commanded Jehu through the prophet Elijah to strike down the house of Ahab. And it says in 2 Kings 9.10 that that God might avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Now, Elisha went on to say, and the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel and none shall bury her. In fact, God himself spoke directly to Jehu and commended him for following through with it. That's in 2 Kings 10.30. So the relevant question here is that if God commanded Jehu to strike down the house of Ahab, which would be bloody, why then is he judging the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel? When he says, I'm, you know, I'm going to punish with, uh, for the blood of Jezreel. Well, this is where it gets kind of interesting. So it turns out that Jehu did obey the Lord in striking down the house of Ahab, but he went further than that. He took matters in his own hands, actually killed uh, Azahiah, uh, who was a Davidic king. We know this from 2 Kings 9, 27 and 28, along with 42 members of his family. And that's in 2 Kings 10, 12 through 14. And he killed a whole bunch of other people too. So he basically had a thirst for blood. Uh, G.H. Livingston commented that Jehu became king and continued to brutally destroy anyone he didn't like. So overall, we learn from 2 Kings 10.31 that Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, uh, uh, walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. So in other words, he was not a good king. So when God is promising to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, one commenter noted that because of how it reads in Hebrew, a possible translation is, and I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. In other words, the consequence for Israel's sin will be on the level of all the bloodshed that took place in the valley of Jezreel. So again, that first child is not God rewarding a barren womb with fertility. This is dark stuff. (laughs) This is how God feels about Israel's spiritual adultery. Now, there's a little seed of hope here 
in that the word Jezreel itself is a little bit ambiguous. It can mean God will scatter, like someone might scatter chaff to be thrown out or destroyed, but it also can mean God will scatter like a farmer scatters seed to be planted and restored. So it sort of has this dual, like two sides of a coin. Um, it, it describes this nation ripe for judgment, yet to be restored to a relationship when the judgment has had its necessary work done. So that's Jezreel. That's the first child that uh, Hosea and Israel, uh, uh, Hosea and Gomer had. Uh, then it says that uh, after uh, Jezreel, the Lord told Hosea that he would have a daughter. And he said, call her name, no mercy. In some translations, it means not pitied. And it just means literally, she is not loved. Just take a moment and imagine your first daughter being born and you naming her, she is not loved. That had to be a hard calling for Hosea. But again, Hosea obeys, right? So, a commenter, D.A. Garrett, noted that due to the Israelite culture being so child-centered, this name was about as scandalous and offensive as it gets. It actually identified her as someone who was rejected and abandoned by her father. Now, keep in mind the larger story of Yahweh and Israel here. Um, you know, a friend of mine commented that just having that name alone would rack up the therapy bills, right? Um, so Garrett also noted, whenever her name was spoken— it commanded the attention of the people around and invited the question, why would anyone call his daughter that? All right, so let's, now that we're talking about their second child, no mercy, she is not loved, let's talk about some important context. This is, this is kind of important for the larger story for us to understand what's happening in Hosea. So at this time, Israel was actually split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which was Judah. Now, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Israel, but as we'll see in the text, God didn't forget Judah. So let's get back to she is not loved or not pitied or no mercy. It's a dreadful name, but why did God command this name? So here's what the text says. It's because I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Now, remember, that's the northern kingdom. So in Hebrew, no mercy's name is lo ruhamah. Now, ruhamah comes from the verb raham. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I probably said that wrong. But that doesn't just um, mean just the action of love, but it actually has to do with deep feelings of emotion and compassion, much like the love a father would have for his child. So ruhamah, a child that's deeply loved by their parent, right? And this word is used several times in the Old Testament to show us God's heart toward Israel. One example is Psalm 103.13, where it says, as a father shows compassion or raham to his children, so the Lord shows raham to those who fear him. But the name that's given to her is not Ruhamah, it's Lo Ruhamah. So what does Lo mean? Lo means it's the negation of it. It means not, not loved with that deep, tender compassion. So that type of love that God has shown toward Israel at this point is revoked. So let's get back to our bigger context of the northern and southern kingdom. Eventually, the Assyrians would take the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity and they would never be restored. That's the hard part. But there's a big but coming. Even though Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, in the text of Hosea, God turns his attention to the southern kingdom. 
And this is important because in Hosea 3.5, Hosea directly links Israel's salvation to the house of David, who came through the line of Judah. So that's the southern kingdom. That's why the southern kingdom is so important here. And so he says, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. And, and actually, this prophecy was fulfilled in 2 Kings 19.35, where it says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So they didn't have to use their military might, no bows, no arrows necessary. So why is it important to know about the two kingdoms that Israel was split? Um, Old Testament prophecies tell us that the Messiah would come through Judah and that the throne of David would be forever. Now, the New Testament reveals that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he descended from David and would be on David's throne. So we have this line of Judah and this throne that would be forever, Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah and, and sitting on that throne. So it's extremely important historically that Judah, that that, that is preserved, right? Jesus is going to come through the line of Judah. And I think a huge theme, a huge thing we learn about God, even just from the second child's name, is that God keeps his promises, right? But even so, even though the northern kingdom kind of was never restored, hope is not lost. Okay, so next, about three years after no mercy or she is not loved was born, Gomer and Hosea have a third child, and this is a son. And the son's name is to be not my people. And the reason that God gives for this is that he says, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Now, this name is a bit shocking because back in Moses' day, about 700 years before Hosea, God had promised to deliver Israel out of slavery in Egypt with these words, I will take you to be my people. So there's a really painful, significant reversal of that here. They go from my people to not my people. So this was God basically saying that his covenant with them was void. The relationship was severed. Some commenters have even compared it to a divorce. But then as we're going to get to see in the book of Hosea, there's sort of this radical reversal, this, this switch kind of out of nowhere. The curtain on this dark and terrifying scene is suddenly and radically lifted with no transition. God reaffirms to Israel the promise he made to Abraham uh, many years ago when he said to Abraham, yet the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. And then he vows that Israel in the north and Judah in the south will be gathered together and be put under one head. So that's why that history is, is important for us to understand this as well. So with Israel ceasing to be a nation in 722 BC, the population was all mixed up and scattered. It seemed almost impossible for this gathering together to be possible. I mean, put simply, it would take a miracle. And speaking of miracles, by the time of Hosea, the nation of Israel was just like a tiny little ant compared to the rapidly expanding Assyrian empire. Um, but God had promised they will be as many as the sand on the seashore. And in, in Hosea's day, that would have been laughable. But what are we learning from this book is that God keeps his promises. So in another reversal, Hosea prophesies restoration to Israel through all three names of his children. This is the part that is just 
so beautiful. And this is the part that just shows us the nature and character of God despite our willful rebellion against him. So where there was a pronouncement of judgment, now there would be grace. And so here's some some words from the end of that chapter of Hosea. It says, In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Now, remember Jezreel. The name Jezreel can mean to scatter or throw out or to scatter like to sow seed and plant. Hosea prophesies about Jezreel. And they will go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So what was scattered and rejected will now be gathered and planted. And then finally, no mercy. Remember, she is not loved, not pitied. The text says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, if we skip ahead a little bit to the end of the next chapter, God says, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. But as we journey through the book of Hosea, it's going to be dark. It's it's a dark journey getting there. God has set the scene for his enduring faithfulness, but we're not really out of the woods yet because then God goes through a bunch of punishments that Israel deserves for her sin. And this is where it gets dark again. You know, in in Hosea, it's amazing. We have these, this sort of, without even any transition, going from dark and, and almost despair into this hope and it's gonna be okay, right? And so just to understand that, we have to understand a little bit about the culture that Israel found itself in. I mentioned before that they were just a tiny little speck on the map of the Assyrian Empire that was expanding rapidly and violently, by the way. They were also surrounded by the polytheism and the Baal worship of the Canaanite culture. But Israel was called to worship and depend on Yahweh alone. Now, this made them very unusual among the surrounding cultures. There's actually evidence in Hosea that the Canaanites engaged in ritualistic sexual intercourse with cult prostitutes, and this was to stimulate Baal to send rain for their crops and would give them fertility for their wombs. So according to the surrounding culture, if you could just please the gods, they would take care of you. And so what we find is that Israel would often play both sides of the fence, sometimes even sanctioning the worship of other gods in official worship centers. And then one thing that's really interesting about just the second chapter of Hosea is that the word Baal technically just means Lord. So when the Israelites would say, my Baal, they, they, they might have been thinking they could get a two for one. Maybe if I just say my Baal, it's just, I'm just saying my Lord, right? I'm not, I'm not saying Baal like that. I'm just saying my Baal. And maybe Yahweh will hear me and maybe Baal will hear me. But Yahweh was not having that. Israel was his bride, and she was committing adultery with other gods. So in chapter 2, we we start to hear just in terrifying detail the punishment for Israel's adultery. Yahweh rejects Israel as his wife. Now remember, this is primarily about Israel, but the story is playing out between Hosea and Gomer. The three children are born, and then Gomer leaves and ends up in destitution. And God, through Hosea, chapter 2 says, plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband, that she put away whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. 
Many scholars think that the whoring on her face and the adultery between her breasts might have been a reference to some kind of cosmetic or jewelry that would identify her as a cult prostitute that was consecrated to a particular shrine of Baal worship. And this makes sense if you continue to read through verse 2 about um, when she talks about my wine and my uh, oil, uh, that, that would have been language that she would use to say, look, I'm going to false gods to get these things from. But because of her whoring, he will strip her naked, make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. I mean, this isn't the stuff they make coloring pages in Sunday school about, but but that, that's where we are. This For Israel, this represents God turning her over to the foreign nations and false gods that she once turned to for help. Now she's going to be abandoned to their conquest. And so the Canaanites believed that Baal and other gods would supply their needs. And so that's where we have Israel or Gomer notice, noted as saying, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my oil, my flax. So notice on the focus, the focus is on herself, my bread, my water, me, me, me. She's entirely focused on herself and will stop at nothing to get what she wants. She should be thanking and depending on Yahweh for sustenance, but instead, She's depending on and even crediting her lovers for her wants and needs. In fact, some commenters noted that it's likely she even saw her three children as a reward from Baal. So she found her identity in her selfish pursuit of idols. And in verse uh, 13 of chapter 2, there's just this sad reminder that Israel has forgotten her husband. This is the same God who rescued them out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, sent manna and quail, and caused water to gush from a rock. And now he's forgotten. And all the accolades and praise and thanks are going to false gods. But here's, here's what I want to leave us with today, because there's so much more. And we're going to get into this on the blog. Please follow along. If you want to be blessed by Hosea, uh, go to alisachilders.com. I'm going to be blogging all the way through. But I think this is a good place to leave us for tonight. So when it's describing Yahweh's attitude toward Israel and through, you know, sort of playing out through Hosea and Gomer, Yahweh promises to hedge her way with thorns and build a wall against her so she can't find her path. When I read that, I was just like, thank you, Lord. Can we all just take a moment and thank Jesus for the times when he literally blocked our path, when we were chasing after our idols? He doesn't always do that. But if he's done that in your life, he's been very merciful to you as he was to Israel. And so this section ends with Yahweh promising to punish Israel. But then, like we're becoming accustomed to in Hosea, there's just a quick reversal and really a shocking change of tone here. And he says, therefore, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So I'm going to get into a study of the wilderness because there, it's a theme that's really prevalent in Old Testament scripture and New Testament scripture. And there's sort of this mysterious quality to the wilderness. It can be a very dark and, and, and bad place, but it can also be a place where there's restoration. So we're going we're gonna to get into that on the blog. Um, but I think it's good for us to sit in the undeniable wrath of God against the sin of idolatry. That's really the sin of Israel in the book of Hosea, chasing after other lovers. 
And, and I have asked the Lord as I've studied Hosea, please reveal to me my idols. Shine your light on them. Expose them. Reveal them. Have mercy on me, God. Uh, in fact, I wrote a prayer on one of the blog posts. Now, I'm just going to read it to you because it's, it's how I'd like to end this section. Lord, I thank you for your perfect holy character. I love that you do not tolerate one ounce of idolatry. Please shine your convicting light on every area of my being. May my heart be broken over my own sin and grant me repentance and the grace to follow you without any hint of divided loyalty. Shine your light on my idols, reveal them. Have mercy on me, O God, and hedge my way with thorns and build a wall against me when I wander from the path you have set before me. Draw my eyes to the one who wore a crown of thorns for me. Thank you that I get to read Hosea from this side of the cross, knowing that the full punishment for my sins was paid for by your son, Jesus. Please make me more like you every day as I study your word. And that is my prayer as I read through Hosea. That's my prayer for you. And that is what is that bubbles to the surface as we study Hosea. And so hopefully that gives you a little bit more of an, of an inner picture as why I reacted maybe the way I did to the movie, because as you can see, um, the book of Hosea is so different from what the movie appears to be. And, you know, if it was a story of redemption that really didn't have anything to do with the biblical book and maybe didn't um, have the potential to maybe cause women in particular to be unsatisfied in their marriages. You know, I'm not saying that it's bad to have a story of redemption like that. Um, but as you can see, I, I hope that, this is my prayer, I hope that women who are so deeply committed to defending redeeming love will be that deeply committed to studying the book that it's supposed to be based on. And I think that's a fair question. And one final point I'll leave us with with Hosea is when I was reading a lot of the comments, the question came to my mind, has this revealed an idol? Um, it's, you know, it's fine if, if you disagree with me, but the way that I saw women defending this movie and the book, I have never seen women be that excited about defending the Word of God. I haven't seen it. I'm not saying it's not out there. I just haven't seen it. And so I'm asking the Lord to reveal idols in my own heart. And I invite you to do the same. Maybe if maybe maybe something like a movie like this could become an idol in our hearts. Anything that we, you know, have our hands clenched around that we don't want to let God pry out of our fingers, that's an idol. And so I'm asking the Lord to show me my idols. I invite you to do the same. Hosea will help with that because it's really what it's about, Israel continually going after idols. Our loyalty needs to be to him alone. And this is such an important message for us, especially in the age of social media. It can be so tempting to be worried about what someone's going to say about us on social media. Or maybe we, we withhold the truth because of what somebody might say about it. We have to let those idols go. And I'm praying that the Lord will do that for all of us. So if you, again, are listening on audio platforms, helps us if you click like and subscribe. Uh, tune in next week for the Cultish podcast about Jim Jones, Jonestown, what we can learn from that. And tune in March 8th, 4 p.m. 
for the Super Stream with myself, Natasha Crane, Monique Dusan, and Krista Bontrager to talk about the new Orange Conference and some of the messaging that is going to be making its way into children's curriculums in churches all across the country. And for now, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.